And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Patrick K. O'Donnell. He's an author and a military historian. Patrick, it's, it's great to have you on with us today. Thanks, Dan. It's nice to be back with you. Um, we barely got started the last time we talked about your book titled The Indispensables, and I'd like to talk more about that today. We just came through, actually, Washington's birthday being celebrated in our nation, so maybe we can talk a little bit about this wonderful leader, Washington. You know, I kind of sit back and think, where is a Washington when you need one? (laughs) In our, you know, in our, our current situation, and can you describe maybe at a at a high level what was the man Washington like? What was he like? I I think he was our greatest president on, for multiple things. Um, <laughs> he was a you know a true battle commander during the American Revolution, and and he had some really amazing skills. He was able to, to you know, gain consensus from his subordinates, but also make his own decisions. To to come up with a, a war winning strategy, and it wasn't an easy war. And in fact, the American Revolutionary War was a war that was not preordained for us to win by any means. In fact, I it's a miracle that we <laughs> America won that war. Yes, really. And there were. There was an indispensable man in that Revolutionary War, and that was Washington himself as a leader, um, because he could bring people together. Uh, He brought together a divided country during the American Revolution, where we had, you know, people that were patriots. We had people that were loyalists to the crown. Sure. And that was, you know, an immediate conflict. They had people jumping from one side to the other. That's another thing we don't really remember or think about. But he had to hold all that together, but he also had another skill that you know very few military leaders really ever possess, which is skill of alliance building and, and bringing together the great foreign powers that, that helped the American Revolution finance it and also with troops, mm-hmm. and that being France and Spain. And he, um, you know, he had an amazing relationship with those commanders. But as the commander in chief, and in, 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 uh, as well, and then as a president, he was pretty remarkable. And then he set, you know, an amazing example twice in history. Uh, the first is in 1784, where Washington is the most powerful man in North America and maybe the world, because the revolution has just concluded. America's victorious. And um, Washington makes the decision at Annapolis, Maryland, at the State House. The the room still exists. I think it's one of the most important rooms in America that really uh, nobody knows about. But this is where Washington resigns uh, his commission as uh, you know the commander in chief of the armies and goes back to civilian life and <laughs> sets an example, which is an incredible example. I mean, this is a man that did things for the country rather than himself. He yes. never was paid. He was paid his, um, he was reimbursed for his expenses, which were considerable. But, I mean, they were all expenses that were legitimate and for the cause. And um, 
You know, I mean, it's really a remarkable thing. And he does it again during his presidency where he sets the example of two terms. And um, after his resignation from the army in 1784, I think the most interesting quote comes from King George himself, who says, if he does that, he's the most powerful man in the world. Uh. And he does. He does resign. And it's. I think it's incredible. I mean, that's, that's yeah. sort of right there what it's all about. It's putting your country first rather than your own personal interests. Uh, there's a lot there that I think is a really great example. And many of the uh, the way that we fought the American Revolution in terms of American values, you know, not killing prisoners, for instance, and trying to have yes. principles of liberty and freedom Washington himself tried to translate that onto the battlefield, too. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are incredibly important about Washington. Washington is also, um, in many ways, the founder of American intelligence. Um, he's the founder of the Navy, for instance. That's the the story that I get into in, our, in my book, The Indispensables, where, you know, in 1775, the... Uh, the odds are really against America, and we have a real problem with one critical so- uh, supply for fighting any war, and that's gunpowder. Yeah, and the, the the British recognized that in as our Achilles heel and tried to cut it off. In fact, the revolution really uh, the American Revolution changes from a, a war of of ideas and values. And, and in a revolution, a political revolution to a kinetic war through gunpowder. And what I mean by that, it was a gun grab that, that General Gage basically conducts by trying to take away our powder sources. Yes. And Americans recognize that without being armed as citizens, uh, in this case, they were still loyal. They were still subjects of the crown. They couldn't determine their own destiny. In fact, they'd probably be slaughtered like the, sure. the the british empire had done to every other um anyone that had disagreed with uh, their party line uh and uh, that triggers the american revolution and it triggers it in you know a series of raids that gage conducts really culminating with uh the battle of lexington and concord where that was a gun grab it was they were trying to take the supplies of uh gunpowder and other munitions which the marble headers the indispensables is mm-hmm. the subject of my book. They had gathered those supplies uh, from their trading contacts with Spain, uh, primarily, uh, and, and then some of the uh, also in the Dutch West in, in the West Indies, uh, and they brought those supplies to North America before the Revolutionary War begins in 1774. Mm. That that crucial uh, trading relationships where the, the ships that they manned uh, would become the supply lines of the Revolutionary War. And the Navy uh, comes about through them as well, because Washington saw that the need for powder, and he saw these British ships coming in to supply Boston, and they were British transport ships that were often unguarded. And it was Washington's idea that we think, as well as uh, John Glover, to maybe uh, outfit um, ships to go after those transports, those vulnerable <laughs> transports. And that's what they did. And um, <laughs> the first ships were, you know, first armed vessels in the United States were really had some pretty humble origins. <laughs> I mean, our first 
Arthur's ship was a fishing boat that they repurposed <laughs> at the cruiser and mounted uh, four four pound guns. These are small guns and some swivel guns. And um, you know the the story of the navy isn't necessarily an upward line. Uh, you had some really interesting stories in there. That's why the indispensables is a the book filled with adventure. I mean, it's also filled with mutinies. Uh, our first mutiny is comes from the Marbleheaders that capture a ship. Um, they think it's a great prize. Uh, turns out, though, that that was a ship that was owned by a congressman, <laughs> an American, <laughs> that captured by the British, and uh, it was on its way back to Boston, and they felt, well, that's our legitimate prize, but oh, by the way, sorry, that's an American ship. <laughs> you know, it's owned by a guy that's a congressman that's also a guy that's that, uh, involved in potentially the Navy itself. And uh, mm. <laughs> Washington really wisely decided to give that back to the congressman. Um, and, uh, but the mutiny went on, and it's, it's quite an interesting story that I get into the indispensable. They had to put down that mutiny. And, uh, you know, Washington was smart. He didn't you know, hang anybody or anything like that. He just he arrested the ringleaders, a couple guys, let the others go, and then before you know it, the, a week later they had a new a new uh, a new crew and and more guys going out to uh, to hit these vulnerable British transports, and they did. And that, with with you know, I mean, so much of war is not only about military conquest, but it's also about money and economics, and it, it's really interesting. The the cruisers the, of Washington's navy that's sort of the proper noun there of these these early cruisers, the first Navy, um, they cause the British uh, insurance rate to skyrocket. And um, all of these British ships that are transporting powder are all often um, manned by civilians. And these civilians have to, in that day, believe it or not, still had to have insurance. Mm. Uh, lose their ship. And those, the insurance rates skyrocketed so the cost of the war skyrocketed as a result so washington's little navy had an amazing impact on the war and then they later capture some of the greatest prizes of the war um which include massive stores of gunpowder tons of gunpowder that's that, great um either army for six months or more and uh they get it at exactly the right time uh but we need it the most and it changes the course of history. Now, we're today we're talking with uh, Patrick K. O'Donnell. He's written a marvelous book titled The Indispensables, they divert the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. And this is a marvelous book. I'm partway through it. Um, here's a kind of a interesting question, I think, anyway. Were there individuals, Patrick, who played both sides of the war because they wanted to make money? They weren't so interested in in the cause, uh, let's say, as, as a true patriot would be, but they saw it as an opportunity to make money. Were they investing on both sides of the war sometimes? I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can find uh, individuals that did exactly that or mm-hmm. profiteered in one way or another uh, right. of yeah, the war. And, uh, yeah, that, you know, the war, the American Revolution is is much like any other time in history. You've got amazing patriots. You've got, you know, people that are just 
regular citizens that do the impossible, and then you have people that are real scumbags. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Kind of forget, and uh, you know they're out there, and uh, it's it's often that 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 you know history sometimes forgets them, but they're also some of the most interesting uh, characters, and that they're out. You know that's part of the of the American experience. So um, I try to in my books, I just try to let the story tell itself, mm. and um, and let these characters or individuals in the stories tell themselves. I don't really try to put my thumb on the scale and, uh, and uh, you know, like, bias things. Good let, for you. The story. Yeah. Um, well, now, I, you've, got, um, you've got me interested in asking you about this next section in your book, um, American Dunkirk. And leading up to this, maybe you can tell us um, the, the, the importance of that title, some some Americans here listening today will know right away, but what's the significance of using the word Dunkirk? The significance of that is it's a relation it's a it's a relationship to uh, the the British evacuation of their troops in France, nineteen forty, when yes. their entire stranded in France and in Belgium and uh, part of it mostly France, but they they have to evacuate. And there's a miraculous evacuation, one of the great evacuations in military history at Dunkirk. And that is that's related to the American Dunkirk in the summer of 1776. And this is a situation where it's a true inflection point in history. Uh, The Battle of Brooklyn or the Battle of Long Island, as it's sometimes called, is a situation where the British almost delivered a crushing blow that would have ended the Revolutionary War. And um, it unfolds on August 27th, where the the British launch a large portion, a massive portion, over 20,000 troops, including British uh, allies that they have, Hessian soldiers, to crush Washington's army, which is located in Brooklyn, he kind of divides his army between Manhattan and Brooklyn, and uh, he's got sort of the mission impossible, which is to somehow defend New York City, and that's impossible because the Royal Navy, which deploys about almost 75% of its force, Hmm. well over half. Uh, to North America. This is the largest armada in in world history in North America. They they, they send it over with a, a massive portion of their army as well as these German uh, regulars to crush the rebellion. And they send it to New York, which is um, waterlocked uh, on all sides. And it, it's pretty much impossible to defend the situation where the Royal Navy can land anywhere on that island of Manhattan that they please. So Washington, through political, um, but is politically uh, told by Congress that he has to defend it. And this is really a difficult task. So he has to just put out fortifications and everything on different parts of the island of Manhattan, as well as in Brooklyn, the British land in Brooklyn first. And uh, they, they start to crush what's the American army there. I wrote a book called Washington's Immortals where the Marylanders make an epic stand 
uh, that buys, and as one contemporary historian of that time said, an hour more precious in our history than other. It's kind of an American Thermopylae where they charge multiple times hmm. into Cornwallis's line and allow a, a large portion of the army to escape into fortifications at Brooklyn Heights. Ah. It's here, August 28th, 29th, that both armies are, are, um, are set up against each other, and there's Lord Howe decides to siege um, the Americans, and then come up the East River uh, behind them and destroy them. And it's here that the uh, Washington could have been captured quite easily. They could have snared at least ten thousand Americans, um, but Washington decides to evacuate, and hence <laughs> the term the American in Dunkirk. And they use a sm- all the boats that they could muster. Uh, that they they brought in from Manhattan to bring the army across the East Rish River, and this was really uh, a mission impossible because the East River at the time there was a massive nor'easter that was raging the day before and the day before that, and the river was very high. The currents were like crazy. That getting a boat across didn't work, and the wind didn't work. Uh, but Washington decides. To, to do the impossible, and he calls upon the indispensables, um, the Marblehead Regiment, <laughs> which their specialty is 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 naval operations. They're expert fishermen. They they fished something called the Grand Banks above Nova Scotia in the Atlantic, which is the most treacherous waters in the world still to this day. And every year, uh, dozens, hundreds of men would die uh, mm. because it was so treacherous. But that created a situation where they um you know in that that kind of situation they had to to learn Uh, they became the best mariners in the colonies and um you know with only a few hours they were told okay you've got to take ten thousand men nearly ten thousand men and the wounded and the artillery and the horses across the east river (laughs) and initially they were told that they were going to attack and they did washington told them that because a single traitor or deserter from the army could betray the entire operation. Yes. If the British knew that they were, they would have they would have launched, launched a night assault and potentially crushed the evacuation immediately. Um, but they were told that they were going to attack. Army moves down to where what's now located the, the the base of the Brooklyn Bridge, and this motley assortment of small boats. Some of them have sails. Most of them are just rowboats. Um, the Marbleheaders evacuate the army initially it doesn't go well at all the um currents in the river or the tides everything is going wrong they don't make much headway man that's in charge of the operation by the name of mcdougall there's a mcdougall street in new york city named after him decides to call off the operation he tries to find washington and then luckily washington can't be found so the thing pushes forward and the operation moves forward and luckily the wind changes and the men have to make a dozen crossings uh, mm. back and forth about, you know, nearly a dozen times to bring the entire army right out from under the noses of the Royal Navy, which is only a mile or two down the river. <laughs> but, uh, the, the, you know, what's kind of amazing is that the, the wind doesn't favor the Royal Navy. If it did that night, they would have sailed up and blown those small boats to smithereens. Mm. But it's a race against time because uh, dawn is setting in. And uh, this is where God plays a role. Uh, yes. a, a fog 
providential fog, as the, the men said uh, in the evacuation, comes in and screens the movement of the rest oh, of the army. Wow. That's so they neat. Can't, they can't see anything. Um, the British can't see anything as they're about. They come over the rise uh, into the empty uh, encampment, and the men are in the boats on the river, which is screened by fog. And uh, <laughs> nearly everybody making it the American Dunkirk and one of the greatest evacuations in military history. And it, it's all thanks to the men of Marblehead, Massachusetts, uh, the indispensables, which saved the Army multiple times uh, during the war, and they later rolled Washington across the Delaware. That is remarkable. And uh, it's good to hear the story of this, the account. And like you say, it's it's providential. This is how it worked out, how... Uh, God ordains all things after the counsel of his will, and some of his providences are very hard. Can't understand them at the time, many times, but um, this is this is really neat. And so uh, after, as they evacuated, what, they, they got over to Manhattan then? They get to Manhattan, and then there's about a two-week pause. Um, the British attempt to negotiate again with us, the the crown's leaders there, Lord Howe and his brother um, uh, Richard Howe, uh, known as Black Dick because he's he's actually he's in charge of the navy. They're charged with being peace negotiator negotiators by King George, but they really don't have any authority at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the negotiate just go ahead and you know lay down your arms and we'll you know, <laughs> kind of forgive you, right? But it's it, it's not acceptable to anyone. Uh, after all the blood that's been shed, and you know the America wants independence, it's only about a month and a half after the Declaration of Independence at this point, and uh, we push forward. And then two weeks after the Battle of Brooklyn, the British invade again uh, at Kipps Bay uh, in Lower Manhattan, and uh, it's it's a disaster. Um, pretty much the army starts to fold and collapse. You have a situation where Washington is a true leader. He's out front and, uh, he tries to urge his men on, uh, and they are retreating right in the midst of his, of the battle. And he's only, I mean, there's a story of where he's only about three or 400 yards away from the advancing British army, a massive tide of red is approaching his horse and he's catatonic. He's literally frozen there. And somebody has to take the reins of his horse and lead him off the field. He was really willing to die wow. for the cause right there. Takes him off the field and it's the the Marblehead men as well as Marylanders uh, who then are part of a rear guard as well as some other units that are kind of battle-hardened that, uh, that stem the British tide is, is long enough for the Americans to get into their fortifications near Harlem. And uh, a series of battles are waged in and around Harlem. There's a Har- battle of Harlem Heights, which is remarkably a victory for the Americans against uh, some elite British troops. Um, it's a small victory, but a, it, it's, it's a victory nevertheless. But the rest is one defeat after another, and the Americans are pushed uh, further north. Um, out of Manhattan, there's a disaster, a place called Fort Washington, and eventually uh, Washington brings his troops over to New Jersey, 
and they 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 basically are fight do a fighting retreat through New Jersey to the the safety of the Delaware River in the the plentiful farms of Pennsylvania, which will feed and supply the army. And it's here that the cause is is falling apart in front of Washington's eyes. The the army of 20,000 that he had in New York had withered away to mere mere thousands. Enlistments were about to expire at the first of the year. And um, Washington writes to his brother that the game is pretty much up unless Mm. we do he decides to mount um, a last-ditch offensive uh, to change the course of the war, and that is to attack Trenton. And uh, it's once again, uh, Marble Washington turns to John Glover, who's the um, he's a brigade commander at this mm-hmm. point, but he's in, you know ostensibly in charge of the Marbleheaders, and asks him, "Can you bring the army across the Delaware River?" Which is a, ch- a real challenge too, and it's. It's as bad as the East River, maybe even worse. Um, he says, don't worry, my boys can handle it. <laughs> and uh, they they mount uh, an operation, which the code word that night for uh, is victory or death. There you go. And, uh, yeah. yeah. They mount the operation. Uh, I think what's interesting is most of the prongs of the Army, there's, there's several that try to cross the river that night on Christmas Day. Uh, Christmas night, I should say, they fail. They don't cross. Mm. It's only the in the boats that are ma- uh, manned by the marble headers of uh, the indispensables that get the army across, and uh, they they cross, and uh, they're immediately behind schedule. There's a lot of uh, things that are just providential here as well that change the course of history, and uh, they march, you know, over a dozen miles to Trenton. In, in a, a storm, a massive storm, uh, men are literally uh, so tired that they fall asleep. Mm. Uh, in, no, some some are literally if they are not woken up, they would they would have they died. Would die. Yes. Now uh, we're going to uh, have to stop the narrative there because we ran out of time. Um, we could keep going another hour at least. Uh, we're talking with Patrick K. O'Donnell. The book is The Indispensables. If a listener would like to get a copy of your book, Patrick, how would they go about doing that? Go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com or any independent bookseller, and you can uh, obtain uh, this best-selling book, which is already in its like, seventh, eighth reprinting. And uh, it's, it's also on Audible. We are very honored to have you on with us, and thank you for giving us so much of your time. Patrick K. O'Donnell, uh, military historian and author of The Indispensables. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. It was fun. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 